Thanks so much for joining us today on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here, and today we are here to help you with your taxes. Our guest, Mary Mellum of Ashwaubenon Tax Professionals. She and her husband, David, have been in the tax business for more than 30 years. They serve individuals. They consult other tax professionals, and they teach tax seminars around the country. So as we talk with Mary, I hope you'll join in uh, with your own questions. Uh, You do your taxes yourself. Maybe you use TurboTax or another um, professional like Mary. If you're a small business owner, what are your concerns about filing this year? Join the conversation. Give a call. The number is 800-642-1234. 6421234 or send an email to ideas at wpr.org. Love to hear from you. Mary Mellum, welcome back. I mean the deadline for filing taxes is April 15th. And I know you wanted to start by talking about the earned income credit today. Um, first, maybe what is the earned income credit? The earned income credit is a credit to help lower-income people survive, so to speak. Uh, It was started some years ago, and the word earned means that to get the credit, you have to have earned income, wages, positive self-employment income, that kind of thing. It's an encouragement to work and help you maybe lower-income jobs, that kind of thing. It initially started out based on earnings and the number of children you have. Some years ago, it was expanded to include people with lower earned income that have no children. And so there is the potential for people taking advantage of the system. So while the credit is very good, there are also things that have put, been put in place to prevent people from creating children or creating income to qualify for this. So it is a wonderful gift, so to speak, to the people that qualify for it. But there are things in place that if you cheat the system and get caught, it could keep you from being able to claim it if it was an honest mistake for two years, if it was fraud for 10 years of not being able to take advantage of it. On the practitioner side, there are also penalties for the practitioner not making sure that the right people get the credit. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. It does make a big difference. The credit can go anywhere from $600 for people with no children all the way up to 7000 over $7,000 if you have three or more children. If you are, let's say you're 65 and your your only source of income is Social Security, would that could that count? No. The credit goes for the single person with no children. They have to be between 25 and 65. During the COVID years, we had an ex- expansion of that age limit, but we're back to the normal 25 to 65, and you must have earned income, wages, 
Schedule C positive, Schedule F positive, be a part of, you know, a partnership that has positive income. It has to be earned income. Okay. How, how do you claim the credit? Let's say you, you do have earned income. In the, in the 1040 packet, there are worksheets to calculate the credit. It's based on the amount of earnings that you have. There is a limit to the AGI, and it's a, a worksheet that you would work through to get to the top of that. And just to put in perspective a little bit, the maximum AGIs vary based on no children, one child, two children, or three or more children. But if you have three or more children, your AGI, if you're married, can be as high as 63000 For a single person or head of household, um, it could be 56000 So it's not just very low incomes that can qualify for these things. So let's say we claim the earned income credit. Uh, when can one expect a refund? Well, because earned income is an area of high traffic and high potential um, doing things wrong, the IRS is trying to wait till they get the wage documents and the earning statements in. So this year, they will not start dispersing the money on these claims until February 25th. It used to be kind of a scam to get your create some W-2 income or a Schedule C business that really doesn't exist but had a profit, get those tax returns money in and get that money back quick before the IRS caught on to it. But in the past years, they've been a little sharper at corralling the wrongdoings with this. <laughs> so... Uh some good opportunity here for some people at least who qualify to maybe if you have three children or so uh, to receive quite a bit of money. That's correct. And even for two children, the top number is 66,000, uh, 6,600. One child, it's 3,900. For some people, it's part of what it takes them, what it gives them to live on during the year. And the interesting thing with earned income credit, it's like a mountain. As you earn more, you receive more until you get to a certain point. And then as you return, earn more after that, the subsidy, if you will, or credit goes down. So it's meant to help people. But as your income level goes up, the hill goes down, so to speak. The yeah. subsidy tapers off. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, we have lots of callers online. I have more questions for you, uh, Mary, but uh, Dan and Plover has a question. Let's go there. Hello. Hi, what's on your mind, Dan? Hi, Dan. I have a quick question. So my wife and I are both 61. I am retired, uh, and uh, my earnings uh, out of an IRA are, let's just say, 125000 uh, my wife is working, and her earnings per year are seventy-five thousand. My question is, I, I, I'm curious if I'm getting over, you know, moving into a higher tax bracket. I just want to make sure I'm taking out enough from a tax perspective, federal and state, uh, 
based on what we're making, and what, what would that rate be? And then secondly, at 62, I was thinking of taking Social Security. And, you know, does anybody have an idea of what my rate would be based on that income uh, on Social Security? Well, just to do simple math, Dan, with you, if you're looking at $200,000, your wife's income and yours, and you subtract out, and I'm rounding this, standard deduction goes for a married couple anywhere from twenty-seven to 30000 But if we kind of do it at the high end, the 30000 that means that you're going to pay your taxable income is going to come in at about 170000 my math is correct there, and 170000 under 2023 rates, you are in the middle of the 22% tax bracket. 190 currently is the top of that tax bracket, so if you put on 20000 more of income, you would tip into that bracket. Now, you might have investments and things like that that you didn't tell me about, but just with the simple math, that's about where you are. Now, Social Security is taxable to the point that at most 85% of your Social Security could be added on to your income. So if you collected $2,000 a month for Social Security. That that would be 24 for a year, and at 85% taxable with your income, that's what it would be. You'd be tacking that other 20,000 onto your income, and you're getting close to the top of the 22% tax bracket. After that, any money over that would be taxed at 24%. So that's kind of a quickie of where you're at. Yeah, there you go, Dan. Thank you very much uh, for calling. Appreciate it. Uh, John in Oshkosh has a question. John, hello. Hello. Uh, Thanks for the program. Um, I have a $100,000 traditional IRA. I also have $30,000 in federal residential tax credits for solar energy installation on my property. I would like to convert the traditional IRA to a Roth. Can I use the energy tax credit to pay the tax on the IRA conversion? And if so, what is the state of Wisconsin's interest in this transaction? Thank you. Okay, Um, good question. Your traditional IRA, now you didn't tell us whether you were single or married, but if you are converting a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA, that $100,000 is going to be taxable right now. If the tax, I mean, if that's everything you have, just, again, add a quick look. If you are single, you're going to subtract roughly 15000 off of that, and your taxable income then would be 85000 At 85000 it's going to create a tax. The tax can be offset by the energy credit. 
the energy credit is a non-refundable credit. So as long as you have tax due, you could offset that energy credit with that. And I believe the solar credit comes with a carry forward with it, that if you don't use that credit, you can carry it forward. I believe that. I'd have to double check, but I believe the solar is that allows you to do that. Hmm. All right. John, thank you very much for calling. Appreciate it. Mary Mellum, our guest today, tax professional from Green Bay, who's been in the tax business, Ashwaubenon Tax Professionals, for a long time, and she does a wonderful job. Larry Mueller here. Tyler Ditter's our engineer. Jill Nadeau, our producer for the Ideas Network. Taking a look at your taxes on the program today with Mary Mellon of Ashwaubenon Tax Professionals. Great to have her with us. Just a quick note, we're cutting our upcoming member drive down to a single day. And that means we need to raise seven days worth of donations in just one day. So to help ensure we meet our goal, a group of generous members have created an exciting challenge when... 500 people donate before February 28th. An extra $20,000 will be unlocked for WPR. So you can join in now with your gift. Uh, go to WPR.org donate. That's WPR.org donate. And remember, it's tax deductible. <laughs> Let's go back to... Uh, the phone's here. Mary Kay in Kenosha. Your turn. Hi, Mary Kay. Hi. I'd like to know why the state of Wisconsin Department of Child Support is making the non-custodial parents sign a form that says they can't claim dependents. When it's a, it's a federal law, they can. Both parents can claim their children on their taxes. So what I'm asking you is why is the non-custodial child support, you know, paying parent getting the credit for their children. Hmm. Talk, I, I don't agree with um, what you just said or how I interpreted what you said. First of all, federal law says that the custodial parent has the first right to claim the children. That's what the custodial, the parent where the children sleep most, the majority of the year. The non-custodial parent is only able to claim the child if the custodial parent waives the right to claim that child. I don't know anything about how social services is involved in it or the, um, the payment of, of support, but support doesn't have anything to do with what the IRS law says about claiming the child. If the custodial parent is willing to waive the right to claim that child, there is a specific form of Form 8332 that must be signed by the custodial parent saying, I will not claim it either for this year or they could go out on a limb and say for all future years. That's the only way the non-custodial parent has the right to claim that child. You cannot claim it on two returns at the same time. Mary Kay, there you go. Thank you so much uh, for calling. Let's turn to Scott in Brookfield. 
Hi, Scott. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I have been filing taxes for my two daughters. The older one um, just left college, so she's doing her own this year. But my younger daughter is still in college, attending a university in the state of Indiana. And we have a address of record here in Brookfield. Um, and she got income last year from the state of Indiana. She earned in state of Indiana and also the state of Ohio for doing jobs and her internship. Um, but no income here in Wisconsin. So who do I file for state returns? Do I still file Wisconsin? Do I just file it in Indiana and Ohio State for what's ever on those wage and earning? Do I, I, I'm not quite sure how to handle that for her. That's a good question. Uh, if she remains a resident of Wisconsin, all of her income earned worldwide is taxable to Wisconsin. So you definitely need to file a Wisconsin return. If she is above the filing requirements for the other states, she would file um, the income tax returns for those states, and taxes that she pays to those states qualify for a credit on the Wisconsin return. It's a form OS on the Wisconsin returns. So theoretically, you could be filing three different states for that income earned in the way you described. Now, there are reciprocity agreements with, I know it's not Iowa and or Ohio. I don't remember if Indiana falls into a reciprocity agreement. If they do, then Indiana may not require them to be filed. Um, we have reciprocity with a few states, like Illinois. We have, if someone lives in Wisconsin and earns income in Illinois, you don't have to file an Illinois return. You include it all on Wisconsin. However, if there is any withholding taken out, the only way you get the withholding back is by filing the return. So. I would say in your picture, you, you're needing to look at three different returns in addition to the federal. Scott, there you go. Thank you so much uh, for calling. Appreciate it. Uh, Mary, I wanted to ask you a question about identity theft. When it comes to taxes and tax documents, how common is identity theft? Identity theft is big time. Um, there are always unscrupulous people out there looking to get into bank accounts. And, um, you know, we see all the advertisements about the title locks and all of those kinds of things. In the tax world, if you look at a tax return that is filled out in normal sense, you have a social security number, which is kind of the key to everything. And with computer trafficking and all of that kind of thing, um, it's a prime source for it. The IRS, when it, the IRS is very good about um, trying to ensure that we have things in place to protect as much as possible. And so they have worked with the tax professional community to make sure that we do all of the things to protect the identity of people. Again, Nothing is 100%. Um, 
But when there is identity theft, um, IRS does have a form that you can report that your identity has potentially be, been stolen. And on the tax side, that means that if someone gets your social security number and enough data to act like you, they can file a return in your place and create, a, for instance, earned income credit that gives them lots of money back. The IRS has created an IP pin. It's an identification, it's a five-digit PIN number that they either will issue to you as a result of you reporting identity theft to them, or you can request that number. When you file your tax return each year, you will have a new five-digit number that they issue to you on an annual basis that when you put that in your tax return, it says, I'm really me and they process the return. If someone has stolen your identity and you go to file your return, and we're talking electronically because that's most of what we do, if someone else has used your identity, you will get a reject notice saying this return is, this number's already been used, and it is a real mess to unravel all of it. It takes several years oftentimes, to get to the bottom of things. Now, Wisconsin also participates, not with the same federal number, but Wisconsin has an IP-type PIN. They have a six-digit PIN that you can apply for with Wisconsin. We don't see as many in Wisconsin as we do with the federal side. Um, but it's another way that they're the IRS is trying to make sure that the right people get the right money. Yeah, make, makes good sense. Margaret in Cambridge emailed, she gifted some land five years ago, uh, or was gifted perhaps. Uh, what would be the basis and how would she calculate taxes when she sells it? So she got some land five years ago. And now I was wondering what would be the basis and how would she calculate taxes when she sells it? The basis of the land is the basis that the person who gave it to her had. Now, a lot of people say, what do you mean by basis? Basis means cost involved. So if you are gifted something, whatever the person who gifted it to you had as an investment, so to speak, in that land, that transfers to you. If there was a Form 709, a gift tax return done by the person who gave it to you, that basis or cost had to be included in that return. So the first thing I would do is talk to the person that gave it to me and ask if they know what their cost is. And when you file the tax, and then you capture that cost, and when you file the tax return, you would compare that investment plus anything else you put into the land to your selling price, and that's how you, the difference between the two would be the gain that you would have to pay. But it is contingent on the numbers of the person that gave it to you. Yep. 
Let's take another call, Ed, in Grays Lake, Illinois. It's your turn. Hi, Ed. Yes, hi, Larry. What can we do for you? Okay, um, uh, I am in a LLC, a business LLC uh, that's it happens to be in Delavan, Wisconsin, with uh, two friends of mine, and uh, we are expecting a fairly good tax right a tax loss. Uh, we know that if we get a, if we get we have to pay taxes, we share. We go. It's a pass through thing, uh, but we're expecting that money, and we want to divide it up fairly between the three of us. Uh, a friend of mine just told me, and I think he's wrong, that well, they put a lot of money in this year, and I didn't pay hardly anything. They should get the tax, uh, the money we're going to get back on taxes totally. I don't think that's right. I think our operating instructions and what I've read said that uh, you know we divide it up by how much, how many shares we own, how much equity we have. Like right now, I'm at forty percent and twenty uh, percent. Um, and so that's the first part of the question. Uh, do we do we do it? Do we share by equity uh, the tax return. Uh, the second question is: I've been just taking an average of the twelve months how much equity we have, and then using that figure. Uh, another one of my partners saying, "Well, we'll just use the end of the year." Well, I'm thinking if somebody puts in two hundred thousand in December. You know they're going to get uh, and they're going to get credit for the whole year. So that's my two-part question. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'll hang up and listen. Okay. Thanks, Ed. Um, when you have a partnership, it is a pass-through entity. Partnerships can have a share of equity, and and when you divide up the income, the expenses, the loss. It is based on your share of the partnership. So your share of the partnership is calculated at the end of the year, and it's going to be your share of that is going to be based on that. Um, and you're looking at investment during the year. The only time you're going to use mid-year is if somebody goes in and out, and you're going to do it based on that. But if you are a 40% partner, you're going to get 40% of what's going on, positives, negatives, that kind of thing. But let's say that, for instance, you got 40% of a distribution. And if you don't have any basis any investment in it, that they gave you 40% because you have the knowledge of the business and they put the money in, you're still going to get that 40%. But that 40% could be taxable to you because when you get a distribution out of a partnership, you reduce the distribution by your dollar investment in it. If you don't have a dollar investment in it, all of that's going to be taxable to you if the person who owns the 60% put in $100,000, their distribution is going to be reduced by the $100,000. I got it. All right, there you go. Thank oh. you. And, well, would that work in reverse on losses, too? Yes, it works. In terms of losses, if you're a 40% owner in the partnership, you're going to get 40% of the losses is going to pass through. Now, 
it depends on your basis, again, whether you can take that loss right now or if it has to be put off to the future. There's a lot of complicated things that go along with partnerships. And sometimes another kind of pass-through entity is an S-Corp, and there are slightly different rules as far as the equity and things with the S-Corp than there is with the partnership. And maybe they're confusing things with yeah. it. Yeah, that could be. Uh, Lisa and East Troy emailed, she did their taxes as always using HP software. Last year, the federal return was $1,700. This year, for the first time ever, they owe 500 they're married, filed jointly, similar income, similar mortgage interest, but they do have $7,500 additional from a CD that is not yet mature. Would that be enough to change their normal tax refund or to a payment owed? That is really a tough question to answer because there are a whole lot of other things in there. Did their withholding change? That can make a difference. If you had exactly the same amount of income this year that you had last year, you should theoretically owe less because the standard deduction is higher. But if they had $7,500 of interest income that they had to pay taxes on, assuming it came through that that has no income paid, taxes paid on it, and you're going to use some of your withholding that you had to pay the taxes, and that can reverse the situation. So it's kind of a multitude of things. If everything is equal, the same income, the same withholding, and you go from 22 to 23, you should be paying less tax. So I suspect that there is something that is not exactly the same. Megan in Madison uh, emailed to ask uh, if there are changes this year in filing income as hobby versus business. She received she reviews products online and previously received a 1099 miscellaneous for the value of the product she received. Uh, it was two thousand dollars in 2023, but this year it's a 1099 NEC. Okay, that is a, a great question because several years ago, the IRS created the NEC. It's called Non-Employee Compensation. There was a box on the 1099 miscellaneous for non-employee compensation prior to the creation of this form. I suspect that the people just transitioned into using the right form. The law has not changed. It's just the formatting has changed. The miscellaneous no longer has the non-employee compensation box on it. It has to do when the forms are due to the IRS. Non-employee compensation is like the earned income that we talked about with earned income credit. It is subject to self-employment tax if it's not a hobby, but if it's a business. And the IRS created the form to segregate it from the other things that come through on a miscellaneous. So I'm guessing the fact that she got the form this year is whoever paid it out 
got up to speed on it, or maybe they were paying it some way that kind of circumvented the non-employee compensation, and for some reason, like audit, they had to change the way they were doing it. Mm. But no rules are different um, between business income and hobby income for this year compared to last year. David in New Berlin has a question for us. Let's go there. Hi, David. Well, good morning. Um, my question is about cost basis on a stock sale. Um, I'll just use a simple analogy here. Um, um, I had purchased 100 shares of company A, and let's say that I paid a dollar a share. So I have a cost basis of a dollar a share for that company. That company spun off another company and said, for every three shares of our A company, we're going to give you uh, one share of our new company. Let's say that, that they call that company A+. plus, right? Mm-hmm. So now I have 100 shares of company A and 33 shares of company A+. plus. I sold the A-plus stock, and let's say that that doubled in price. So now that sales price is showing that I made $66, because now it's up to $2. Uh, the tax statement I got from that sale says I have no cost basis in that sale, and it's showing all of that money as a capital gain. Okay. When you have a spinoff, your basis is allocated between all of the shares you now own. So that document is not, is not accurate in terms of what they're saying on that document. Um, if you've got a brokerage statement in front of you, I don't, well, it should be a covered transaction. Um, I would say look in the later pages of the brokerage statement because sometimes they will tell information to you that they haven't told to the IRS. So you would not, you theoretically would be taking your $100 that you invested in those 100 shares and it gets allocated between the 133 in an appropriate manner. So when you go to sell the 100 shares of A, your cost basis is no longer $100 in those 100 shares. It's $100 less what was allocated to company A+. Does that make sense? Sure. Okay. So the reverse of that would be is I sold the 33 uh, mathematically, you know, instead of the instead of the one hundred dollars invested, that one hundred dollars has to be divided into one hundred thirty-three now, correct? Yes, assuming that the price value, you know, you look have to look at the value of of what you got. But yes, that essentially is what you're doing with it. And when there is a conversion. Oftentimes, converting company has a worksheet that tells you how to allocate all of that. But theoretically, you can't save the 100 shares, its basis, and do nothing to the other one. That's not the appropriate way to do it. 
it doesn't mean that brokerage that the brokerage companies always have all the information or bother to calculate it. The idea of basis is on on your shoulder, unfortunately. Hmm. There you go, David. Thank you so much uh, for calling. Appreciate your call. Mary Mellum, our guest today, tax professional with Ashwabadon Tax Professionals. Great to have her with us today. I'm Larry Mailer for the Ideas Network. Taking a look at your taxes on the show today, Larry Mueller here with my guest, Mary Mellum of Ashwabadon Tax Professionals. Great to have her back with us. Always a, a pleasure. She knows so much. Lots of callers online, lots of emails. Mary in Cedarburg emailed that her dad passed away two years ago. So this tax filing was the last one that dealt with anything with him. Her mom just received her return, and her tax professional told her that beginning next year, she won't have to file any more returns. Her only income is Social Security and a small pension from Mary's father that will remain the same. Is this correct? That's a good question, and sometimes things work in reverse in a death situation. But the filing requirement for any person is based on their taxable income and their age and their filing status. Um, I would, I'm guessing that her mother is over 65. And currently, the filing requirement for a person over 65 is 15700 for federal purposes. State may be a little bit different. But if she has a small pension, chances are her Social Security is not going to be taxable, and her small pension would be, could be underneath that 15700 And that would cause her not to be required to file. So um, one of the things to look out, if people have withholding taken out of pension, and they're not required to file, the only way to get that withholding that they don't owe back is by filing a return. That can be easily corrected by stopping the withholding and maybe not having to file. Let's go to so, Mary and Racine next. Hi, Mary. Good morning. Thank you for a wonderful, timely program. I have a question. My husband and I each carry long-term care insurance, and it's what they ref- has been referred to as a hybrid policy. Um, if we need the long-term care for a certain amount, it's available. But if we don't use it, then the amount goes to our beneficiaries. Um, we have not been able. We don't. We interpret the federal guidelines that we are not able to deduct this policy, but I'm wondering if we are interpreting that correctly and if it is deductible for long for a federal insurance. I guess I'm not sure how you're interpreting it. If you are paying for long-term care and it's commingled in a life insurance policy, it may be deductible. Uh, what it sounds like is you're paying for long-term care and Somehow there's a life insurance policy 
involved with it. There are specific rules for when you can deduct long-term care. Um, the policy has to not pay for anything that Social Security would pay for. Um, it has to be a relatively, and I, I say this, a newer policy because years and years ago there were um, long-term care policies that do not qualify, but it's been 10 or 15 years ago at least that the rule changed. What I would do is, number one, look up the rules and go to irs.gov and look up the rules on what constitutes a deductible long-term care policy. Again, you're looking at, I believe one of the rules is you can't get refunds back from the premiums that you pay. But there is a set of rules that go along with it. And the other thing that I would do is talk to your insurance provider. Ask them, is your policy a life policy commingled and are they actually paying premiums? And taking those the answers to those and putting them against what it takes is what I would say is the best thing. Um, I've seen long-term care commingled with life insurance, and I don't think that's going to totally deny it, but it's how it's packaged that you're going to have to find out. Yeah. And regarding life insurance, if you have a policy, a whole policy that is now matured and there's $100,000 there, for example, would you, is that taxable when it comes out of the policy? Interesting question. I just ran into that today. If you surrender a whole life policy and it has a cash value on it, the cash value minus your basis, which is generally your premiums that you have paid, is the difference between those two is what you're going to pay taxes on. There you go. Andy, uh, in Cudahy, your turn. Hi, Andy. Thank you for taking my call. I'm turning 73 this year, and I have an IRA, so I'm going to be required to take a required minimum distribution eventually. I'm learning what my options are. Do I take the distribution this year, or can I wait till April 15th of next year and make two distributions for that year? It looks like you know the rules because in the first year that you become subject to RMD, which is currently age 73, you have those two options. You have the option of taking it in the current year, the year you turn 73, or a one-time only ability to take it by April 1st of the following year. But with that delay comes the requirement to take also the following year's RMD. So those things are going to be contingent on your own per personal circumstance. For instance, if you are working during the year that you turn a required minimum age, and the next year you're not going to be working, your income level is going to change, and it may not hurt you to take two different distributions in one year compared to adding the one distribution onto your current year's income. 
so you've got to look at your particular circumstance. But the rule is, is exactly right, that in the very first year, you can delay that first year's RMD up to April 1st. But that can never happen again. It's a one-time shot. <laughs> All right. There you go, Andy. Thank you. Tony in Darlington, your turn. Hi, Tony. Uh, yeah, thank you, Larry. Um, I uh, filed my returns online through H&R Block, and the next day I looked, and it, the federal got rejected because it said someone had already used the Social Security number of my dependent. I have a 19-year-old son who graduated last year, so he was qualified still as a dependent. So now I don't know what to do. Okay. That is a somewhat common problem. The first thing that I would do is go back to your input screen and or your tax return and make sure that you really put the number in correctly, that it wasn't transcribed because it's easy to flip numbers. That's the first thing I would do. If it is, if there was a transcription error, you correct it and refile and it should be good. If you look and that isn't the case, the next thing that I would do is go to my child and say, did you file a tax return and not check the dependent box? Because if that's the case, it would reject in that category as well. To solve that problem, you have to decide who really, is that child really your dependent? And if so, the child has to refile their tax return. In either case, you will not be able to electronically file this year. You'll have to paper file the return because your child would have to amend their tax return and correct it, and the system is not going to get through. Last situation is, if neither of those things are the occurrence, then there may be identity theft on the part of the, of the child's information, in which case you'd have to paper file the return either way. If you have a right to it, you're going to have to paper file the return. There is a form 14150, uh, let's see, let me think. I think I'm giving you, there's two forms, 14157 and 14039, that one of those two forms is an identity theft report. And let's see if I can quickly find that. But you would contact the IRS and say that I've been the subject of, yes, it's the 14. 039, I believe, not the 157. Yes, the 14039 form is what you would file to report identity theft to the IRS and give them a heads up. It's not going to speed up your return. In fact, it'll probably slow it down a little bit. But eventually, when they process that, they will search for, you know, was there a return filed and where the money went? and you will probably get on the IP PIN list as well, so that next year when you file, you don't have that problem. 
Tony, there you go. There's your options. Thank you very much uh, for calling. Hal in Madison, your turn. Hi, Hal. Hi. Uh, my question is, I, I just filed my son-in-law's tax return the other day, and he had a job last year where they did not take out the proper amount of taxes, and, uh, federal taxes, and he ended up owing uh, about $1,200. Uh, we set up a date to pay those taxes and take it out of his account, um, and when I printed the return, it printed out four vouchers for next year, $300 piece and a separate date. Uh, my question is, he, he now has a job. That job ended in August of last year, and he took on a new job that is now taking out the proper taxes. Does he have to file those uh, estimated tax vouchers, or can he just file a normal return next year? Hal, it's a software thing that somehow in the software that you're using, it automatically creates estimated tax vouchers based on a balance due. If his situation is different, you can ignore those vouchers. They're just for the convenience of the, tax per, of the person with the tax return. It's not hard and fast, and so you can rip them up if, if he's got enough withholding or, or tax from some other source. If you want to get those uh, estimated, uh, file estimated taxes, can you, uh, wh where do you just go to the IRS um, itself to g get a copy of those? If you go to irs.gov and do type in 1040ES, you can print vouchers that you can send in. People that are computer savvy can go to the IRS website and set up an account and make their payments online. And it's, again, a 1040S that you're looking for. 1040S, okay. ES. ES. ES for estimate. I, I got it. Well, I tell you what, we've got lots to talk about here with our guest today, Mary Mellon. Ash, of Ashwaubenon Tax Professionals. She's going to be with us right up until 12.30 today. We are going to take a quick look at the news. We'll find out what else is in store for us here on the Ideas Network. And then we will be back with Mary, and you can join in. Number to call, 800-642-1234 or email to ideas at wpr.org. I'm Larry Mueller. You're listening to the Ideas Network. Talking taxes on the show today. Larry Mueller here. Thanks for joining us on the Ideas Network. Mary Mellum of Ashwabanan Tax Professionals is back with us. Uh, she and her husband, David, have been in the business a long time. They serve individuals. They consult other tax professionals and teach tax seminars around the country. So questions for Mary. I hope you'll join in uh, on the number to call, 800 642 1234 
or you can email us, email address ideas at WPR.org. And let's take another call. Jim and Stoughton will give you a chance now. Hi, Jim. Hi, thanks for this program. My question is, uh, I received my deceased mother's 2020 refund check in 2023. In January of 2024, I received a 1099 INT based on the interest from that refund check. What should I be doing with that 1099? Okay. Um, Jim, are they in your mother's social security number? Is the check in your mother's social security number? Yes. You... Have you tried to cash it? Uh, yeah, the check I was able to cash because it was made out to both my mother and myself. Okay, and that's fine. And that was her refund check on her 2020 return that was filed in 21, and it's just catching up. Am I yes. correct in that assumption? Yes. Okay. If Were you the sole heir of the estate? I was one of four beneficiaries. Did you file an estate 1041 return for her, or are you in the process of that? No. Okay. Theoretically, that refund is taxable, and it's generally only taxable if she itemized her deductions. That would have been on the 1041 return, that would eventually go to the four of you. So if she itemized in 20 on her 2020 return, then it may be taxable or to a certain extent. Otherwise, it it's not going to be a taxable event. You don't have to worry about that part of it. Now, the interest document, again, the 1099 INT, is that in her social security number? Uh, yes. Okay. The right answer to that is, again, because you, the four of you are heirs to her estate, it should be, one-fourth of it should go on all of your returns. Unless it's a huge number, the IRS is not going to look to your mother because it would be under the filing requirement of the Social Security number that's listed on there. But because it should have been included on the estate return and you are the heirs of the estate, it's technically your responsibility, I would put it on the one-fourth of it as a nominee distribution and include it on your tax return. There you go, Jim. Thank you very much for calling. Appreciate it. Perry in Kokana, we go to you now. Hi, Perry. Yes. I have a question on deducting office equipment on your tax form. And this is small equipment uh, purchases. I know if it's bigger, you have to amortize it. But if it's under like 1000 or $1,200, can it be deducted in one year? and any guidelines of how the IRS looks at uh, equipment. Okay. First of all, are you a business owner rather than an employee? I, I am a single proprietor. Okay. 
as a sole proprietor, uh, there is a $200 figure that says any equipment under $200 is eligible to be written off as a supply. There is another election that can be made that says, because my depreciation page would be full of a lot of things between 200 and another bigger number, I can make an election to treat as supplies things that are under $250,000. If, uh, I'm sorry, 2,500, not, not extra zeros, under $2,500. If I am um, a bigger business that has an audited financial statement, that number can be $5,000. What that basically means is the IRS has a safe harbor that if you make that election, you can take in the current year anything that is $2,500 or less per item. If you don't make that election and it is over $200, the way to write it off in the current year would be to do something we call expensing, 179 expensing. And that way you could write the whole thing off. You have to have a profit on your tax return business-wise. So either your Schedule C would have to have a profit or if you have a spouse or another job, the combination of those two has to come up to a positive number. Other than that, it's totally depreciable asset that you would put it on the books for. All right. Perry, good luck. Thank you. Kenneth in Waukesha, uh, your turn. Hi, Kenneth. Thank you for taking my call. My wife and I have several rental properties, and I'm 75 years old and getting tired of this and uh, wondering what is a good way to offset capital gains. I've heard about the Starker Tax Deferred Exchange, but we do not want to have anything we have to manage. Any thoughts on uh, keeping the money working for our retirement? Okay, I, I'm guessing you're talking about selling the rentals. Yes, maybe. Okay. If the Starker Exchange only works, and it's another term, like-kind exchange, it only works if you want to continue to be in the rental business or in some kind of business because it says that I have a piece of property and I want to exchange it for something else. Might be a warehouse, it might be, you know, some other piece of real estate that qualifies. If you want to get out, selling it, Starker and Exchange is not going to get you there. Um, if you do sell the rental properties, there are things like um, installment agreements, where you could sell it and kind of scatter the gain over several years. That would be one way to minimize it. Um, other things might be there are things like opportunity zones that you could invest the money in. Wisconsin has some pro programs that apply only to Wisconsin that you can temporarily avoid the tax um, by investing in some of these things. But short of those kind of programs, you're going to pay taxes on it because you've taken 
write-offs in the past, like depreciation and the fact that things appreciate in property, in, in value is sometimes a nice blessing that's worth sucking up the taxes. <laughs> there you go, Kenneth. Thank you so much for calling. Uh, let's uh, take another call. Kevin in Holman. Your turn. Hi, Kevin. Hello. I have a question about paying taxes on Roth conversions. I'm getting close to retirement and have for years have been putting money in a regular IRA. And I'm thinking about doing a Roth conversion with a bunch of it. And I understand that when I pull money out of the traditional IRA, I will be taxed on it. But my question is, is how are, how do I pay the taxes? I've read that both, I have to do estimated taxes that I pay quarterly, and I've also read that I just do it at the end of the year like normal taxes. I'm trying to figure out what what to do. Okay. I, what I think the catch is here is when you convert a, to a Roth IRA, you're essentially taking a distribution from your traditional and moving it to a Roth. The distribution comes out as taxable. Normally, when you take money out of a retirement plan, you kind of plan ahead and you say, if I want 10000 and my taxes 20%, I'm going to have to take out an extra $2,000. So my distribution is going to be twelve, and I only have 10 left over to spend, and the two is there to pay the taxes. With the Roth, you could do that but it means that you have a $2,000 distribution and only 10 of the 12 went into the Roth. So to make sure everything that you want to convert into the Roth goes there, you have to find another way to either get withhold, get money into the government ahead of time or pay the tax bill at the end. Getting money in ahead of time would either be increasing the withholding you have taken out from some other source. So if you have a retirement program that you're taking money out, you could increase the withholding on that to cover the estimated tax or the additional tax that's going to come from the conversion. Estimated tax payments always work to pay ahead. The only bad side to waiting until the end of the year and paying it when you complete your taxes. In certain circumstances, if you owe the government too much money, you may have an underpayment penalty that is created by that. Again, that depends on what your situation was last year, how much you paid in this year, and things like that. So you have different ways of doing it. Estimated tax payments, even though it's a pain in the neck to send them in sometimes, might be the easiest way that you don't have to fool around with other withholding and you don't have to worry about the penalty if they're paid timely. Yeah. Yep. Kevin, good luck with that. Thank you for calling. Uh, you know, just to kind of go along with that, um, Glenda emailed, I'm sorry, uh, listeners emailed to say their retired folks got caught off guard with the interest they made on their CDs, they will owe federal taxes and will be required to pay a penalty. 
Is it best to let the IRS figure the penalty or do it themselves with Form 2120? Uh, the form is 2210, ah. the underpayment penalty. The 2220, I believe, is the business version. Um, but it is if you figure the penalty, you're probably going to come out with lesser time than the IRS because they're going to wait until, I mean, they're going to get the return, and then they're going to figure the penalty. So if you can figure it out yourself, you're saving yourself some dollars in the terms of the days that you owe the money. Okay. But they'll always send you a bill if they if you haven't paid it and they figure it. So either way, you're going to pay it. <laughs> Just a question of how much. All right. Glenda emailed that her husband has been receiving an accelerated ETF pension. He'll be 62 this month and will start receiving Social Security benefits along with a reduced pension. How do they figure taxes to be withheld so they aren't slammed next year? Part of it is knowing what the reduction is and knowing how much the penalty or how much withholding you have on that with the reduced pension and figuring out what their taxable Social Security would be. Worst case scenario, take the Social Security times 85% and include that in your tax return and figure what the taxes you owe. Or you can go an easier way and have withholding taken out of your Social Security. Uh, there is a 10, uh, 1040- a W-4V form that is voluntary withholding that allows you to ask Social Security to take withholding out of it. And you have a choice, I believe, of 7, 10, 12, and 22% that you could have withheld from your Social Security. And then you've got that covered and don't have to worry. And you can always make adjustments if you overdo it one year and want more money coming back the next year. Lee in Port Edward called to suggest another option for the man who called to say his son's Social Security number was already used. Uh, Lee wonders, it could be there was a divorce and the mom had already claimed him. That's an excellent idea. Um, Depending on the situation, you're looking to see did somebody you know I use the son himself or the child themselves as an example, but certainly in divorce situations where the children could be claimed by one or other parent, that is a wonderful suggestion. Uh, Let's see. Listeners emailed to say they're... um, Let's see. Oh, I've already asked that question, so let me go to Brian in Oshkosh. He mailed, uh, he had a total of a whopping $1.12 in short-term capital gains this year. Does he have to bother filing a Schedule D and WD for $1.12? If it is capital gain distribution, you don't need a Schedule D a Schedule D or a WD this year, that's a new thing on the state of Wisconsin. If it is 
a transaction that you know shows the stock the price and the cost basis theoretically it's a required transaction if you're working with a brokerage firm they should mail you a brokerage statement by March 15th at the absolute latest what are well, your i think the the brokerage statements theoretically are supposed to be out by March of uh, by February 15th, unlike the January 31st. Uh, they are getting better at that. We've seen a lot of the brokerage companies come out by that time. But if they are in a hurry and get them out, it could be that they'll send you an amended um, brokerage statement. If you file your tax return too early, you're going to be filing an amended return. So my suggestion is keep on top of it. Sometimes you can print the brokerage statement online faster than it comes to you in the mail. But if you are an investor with those kinds of things, plan on filing your return a little bit later in the season rather than early. Okay. And what I, and I'm wondering if you, maybe you changed or switched brokerage firms during the year what should, would you expect in that situation? That is an excellent thought. Um, if you switch brokerage companies in the middle of the year, you probably are going to have 1099s from both companies, so don't forget about the earlier brokerage company. Um, this year was a transition, I think maybe this year and last year, 2023. I'm not sure exactly the timing, but... TD Ameritrade was acquired by Schwab, and people with those brokerage companies are going to get both. So just because you're at with Schwab at the end of the year, don't discount the fact that you might have a TD Ameritrade brokerage statement out there. And one last thing with that, the same analogy goes with mortgage companies. If you have refinanced your mortgage during the year, you could well have a, a 1098 from both companies, and don't forget that. That, yeah, that that's a very very good point. Um, property taxes—they're always so difficult. Um, there, they can be difficult to kind of figure out. What if you don't receive your property tax bill? Wisconsin has the. Counties in Wisconsin um, have the ability to go online and check those um, taxes. There are many counties. Brown County has a wonderful website that you can go to, um, and I know other counties have it as well. Um, so do a web search for your county real estate taxes if you can't find it and look it up. More often than not, that information is out there to look up if you don't get it in the mail or some knowledge that it has been paid in the time that it was paid. Deanna emailed her mother passed away and she received the payout from the mom's retirement, a tax form showing that uh, came to her mom in care of her, of Deanna. Does she claim that on her taxes or her mom's? 
it depends on what she's really getting the statement for. She might have been the POA for her mom before she died, and that's why her name is on it. Where, what social security number is it paid out in? If it's on mom's and it was a distribution after death, it belongs on hers if she's the beneficiary, but on mom's final return, she might have to show the whole thing and back out the nominee portion that's going to her. Sometimes things are commingled with what the distribution the deceased person took during their life and the fact that payments were made and not kind of ended at death. So you have to look at what happened with it. Mary, it is always a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us, and I hope we can do this again down the road. Thank you so much. You are welcome. Mary Mellum, tax professional from Green Bay, Wisconsin. She and her husband, David, operate Ashwabanan Tax Professionals, and they are enrolled agents. Great to have her with us. Tomorrow on the show, we'll check in with the Natural Reef Sources Foundation of Wisconsin. Then uh, we'll take a look at saving water at home. Thank you for listening and stay with us. Lots in store on the Ideas Network. I'm Larry Mueller.